The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. So, impact is impact is a church-wide event. We need folks to drive. We need folks to prepare food. We need host homes, and you can sign up at a table in the hallway. You can go to our website, the Hub, and participate in that. But uh, to watch a person like Joanne come full circle, and to God be the glory for all he's done there. Now she's hosting him back this, this summer. Isn't that amazing? Just an amazing, amazing story. In the area of children's ministry, we have opportunities for you. You may be looking high in the Lord's church to find a place to serve. And uh, we have some current opportunities in the area of children's ministry. Exciting chaos continues. And so we've got uh, kids in the Creekside building. We'll be moving into this portion of the remodel when it's done, uh, which hopefully will be sometime in early June. And uh, we'll start over here in July. But in the meantime, we have needs in these areas. We'd love for you to come and participate in that. Secondly, uh, it's also a Sunday of celebration. Three things we want to mention in celebration. Uh, The baptism tonight is a dessert event as well, so bring a dessert to share if you desire to stay. Nineteen people being baptized, and uh, the names are listed in the bulletin, and to God be the glory. Great things we've done. Second thing we want to celebrate, uh, one of our families came to us uh, a couple of months ago and They had a stock gift they wanted to give to TBC. We received the largest gift in our history just this week. Over $650,000 in stock came in. To God be the glory for that. That's an amazing, amazing thing. We don't do capital campaigns. We don't do uh, promise cards or whatever they call them. Uh, We just say, hey, as you're moved, you give and God moved this family to give. That means the whole remodel, $3.6 million. We're about two or $300,000 shy of having that whole thing paid off and not have to borrow any money. So, that's amazing. The other thing we love to celebrate is when some of our missionaries come home and uh, spend some time with us. So uh, Dr. Brenda McLaughlin's right over here. She's in UAE, she represents us there. So would you welcome Brenda back to TBC? Brenda is like one of our kids, too. She was in our son-in-law's medical school class. She owes me a lot of meals because she lost bets on A&M games the whole time. So there we go. Uh, I'm still going to preach. So I've I've got three weeks. I'm loaded for bear. John chapter 8 is where we are. So would you open your Bibles to John chapter 8? And we're going to look at uh, letters in the sand. If you look at John chapter 8, maybe you're going to see some brackets, maybe at the last verse in John chapter 7, uh, parenthesis, or maybe it's not even in your Bible. And the reason that is, is because this section is familiar to us, the woman caught in adultery. It's not in the earliest manuscripts. And so it's debatable whether or not this should be included in the New Testament manuscript. If you'd like to study more on that, just go to our uh, June, our website, June of last year, Dr. Dan Wallace from Dallas Seminary was here. He did a sermon on textual criticism that explains why certain things are uh, uh, committed to the scriptures, omitted from the scriptures, or questionable. And uh, so that is there. So let me pray. Father, as we look at this message, a woman who was caught guilty, condemned, and freed. A powerful story of judgment and mercy, grace, and truth. Teach us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. It's early morning. Jesus is in the temple and he's beginning to teach. He sits down in rabbinic fashion. That's how the rabbis taught in that day. So he sits down to teach and there's a crowd that's gathered. 
Perhaps they met early in the morning because he wanted to avoid confrontation with the Jewish hierarchy and leadership. We don't know why, but the, the sacred place of the temple is shattered. It's shattered because there's a ruckus coming in the distance and they can hear people coming and they're shouting, they're screaming, and, and they're dragging a woman along. She, she is disheveled. She's got a mop of hair hanging her face. Her jaws are clenched. Her teeth are flaring. Her, her, her temper is flaring. And, and she can't believe this is happening. And here's Jesus teaching this crowd. And they plop her right down in the middle. It's like taking a pig to market. And they, they take this woman and they throw her right in the middle of everything that's happening there. And they look at Jesus and they said, you're the teacher of the law. Teacher, this woman's been caught in adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone her. What should we do? If you look in your scriptures, that's what it says in verses 4 and 5. And verse 6 tells us this was all a test. It was a test about Jesus. They, they, they thought they could trap him somehow. And so they throw this lady down in front of him. Now, Mosaic law said at least there had, there had to be at least two witnesses. And so these peeping Tom Pharisees had probably watched more than they should have watched take place. These Pharisees who were really not concerned about upholding the law and really not concerned about taking care of this woman were more concerned about bringing down Jesus. That's what this whole scenario is about. Verse 6, they came to test him. And so as we look at the scriptures and we look at this scenario and all that's happening, what we see is that they bring this woman, they throw her down in front of Jesus and they want to catch him, they want to trap him, they want him to be the pig that's caught in the trap. They want him to be the one who's taken away. They want him to be the one who all of a sudden they can say, aha, we got you. And so they bring this woman, they throw her down and said, uh, teacher, what are you going to do? She's been caught in the very act of adultery. Our eyes have seen it. Shame on them. Our eyes have seen it. We've, we've caught her in the very act. And now what are we going to do? Are you going to do as Moses commanded? Or are you going to do something else? What, what's going to happen here? These guardians of morality have somehow stormed the bedroom of this woman and taken her out when she is defenseless. There's something wrong with this picture, though. What's wrong with the picture? Well, it always takes two to tango, doesn't it? And there's somebody missing. The dude is missing it, and he's nowhere to be found. Oh, they drag her in, but probably from some prearranged agreement, they let him escape. He crawls through a window, he exits through the back door, or he just takes off running because they're really not concerned about him at all. She is merely a pawn in this ploy of the Pharisees. She has no name, she has no feelings, she has no heart. They could care less about her. They could care less about her. These men of power, these men of privilege, these men of position, they weren't worried about her, they were worried about one thing, and that was trapping Jesus. By the way, when I read through this and make those words, say, say those words very carefully, you know, the whole Me Too movement that's happening right now, I don't know about you, but I'm not really surprised that in the world of politics, in the world of Hollywood, in the world of television, in the world of sports, in the world of corporations, that we're reading about all these predators, if you will, all these men of power and position that, that they have been preying up on women. Does that surprise anybody here? I mean, it doesn't surprise me one bit. We've seen it happen for centuries and we see it happening here. And I say, as good godly men, we need to recognize how we treat our women. And as men who walk with Christ, as men of this body, we need to recognize that we're to treat our women with respect. We're to treat our women with honor. We're to treat them as though they are the precious treasures God has given to us. But, but here we go. They throw her down in the midst and the, 
the, the, the, the sacred place is shattered. Because they throw him down, they really want to trap Jesus. And here's what they're really saying here. Jesus, what, what do you want us to do? I mean, what, what are you going to do, rather? It, disappointingly for these leaders, he doesn't enter into debate. He simply stoops down, gathers his thoughts, and we all know the scenario. He begins to do what? He begins to write in the sand. Something you might think my three-year-old or a five-year-old grandson would do, right? Six-year-old granddaughter. You, you would think they would be the ones, but this is the Savior. I don't know about you, but wouldn't you like to know what he wrote? I mean, I've always wondered, what in the world did he write? What he wrote was not for our eyes. What he wrote was for their eyes. I wonder if he began looking up at the crowd mm-hmm, and wrote down his name mm-hmm, and wrote down his name. I wonder if he looked at that guy and wrote down his sin and the next guy and wrote down his sin and the next guy and wrote down his sin. Or maybe he wrote a verse from the Old Testament down. But he begins to write and the silence is deafening and the drama is intense. What's he going to do? What's he going to say? How's he going to respond? And then in perhaps a verse that is well known as John 3.16, Jesus looks up. Actually, it says he stood up. He begins to write in the sand, and then he straightened up, and he said to them, and we all know this verse by memory, quote it with me, he who is without sin cast the first stone. Amazing. It's become proverbial in our culture, hasn't it? I mean, we know what it means. Hey, if you're the sinless one, you throw the stone. Obviously, nobody there is sinless. You see, they thought Jesus was caught in this trap. The, the trap was, if he says, yes, let's obey the Mosaic law and have her stone, then he picks up the stone and begins to cast it. Then those who followed after him would see him as heartless and as legalistic as the Pharisees themselves. And they would begin to drift away. But perhaps worse, under Roman occupation, the Jews were not allowed to exercise capital punishment. And so he would be standing and shaking his fists in the face of Rome itself. So what was he to do? He doodles in the sand, writing names, writing sins, maybe writing nothing. And he comes out with that statement, he who is without sin cast the first stone. Jesus is not overlooking the sin of this lady. We're going to talk about that in a second. But the one thing that happens next is quite interesting. If you look at the scriptures with me, it says in verse 8, again, he stooped down and he wrote on the ground. And when they heard him, they began to go out one by one. And if you write in your Bibles, underline the next session. Beginning with the older ones. Beginning with the older ones. Why them first? I mean, all of a sudden, Jesus says, let him who's without sin cast the first stone. And the oldest guy... Drops his rocks. He's gone. Maybe because the older ones were wisest, or maybe because they were the most guilty. We don't know. Maybe they were the wisest and they knew and they understood the ploy here. Maybe it's because they recognized I'm the biggest sinner in the whole group because I've been here the longest. We're not sure. But I love what the scripture says there. Don't miss it. The oldest begin to leave first. And they dropped their rocks on the ground and they headed off. Let's stop right there for a moment. Basically, what we see here is the judgment of these folks and its condemnation. 
Condemnation and judgment, that's a scenario. It's a scenario of condemnation and judgment. I mean, these folks are trying to to, to somehow test Jesus overcome. You would think they'd be smarter than that by now, right? I mean, you would think they'd realize after trying time and again that that they're not going to win this chess game, if you will. They are not going to checkmate Jesus. They've lost this battle before, but here they are trying again. But don't miss the hard-heartedness of these Jewish leaders. This woman is being publicly shamed. This woman's life will be forever changed because they wanted to include her in this ploy. This woman would be different from this day on. And they could care less about her. She was just this pawn in the hands of these power brokers. Was she a prostitute? I don't know. Did they hire her to go to bed with this guy and sleep with him and have a sexual relationship so he could be caught? We don't know. Was this an ongoing affair that they heard about and she was somebody's wife and somebody's mother? Maybe she had kids of her own. We don't know. But here's what we do know. They could care less about her. They just judged her. They judged her. Adulteress. Look at her. Caught in the very act. It's quite interesting to me how we in the church sometimes can be the worst stone throwers that there are. We have received God's grace. He has extended to us so much love and so much grace. Every song we sang was about the love of God, but yet we tend to be the ones to pick up stones and throw them, aren't we? John Artberg, in that book that I just love the title, I, I try and say it as often as I can. Everybody's normal until you get to know him. And it's just a great title. He writes this He says, uh, I've been in church my whole life. I love the church. But sometimes I wonder why do churches produce so many stone throwers? I think of a church I was part of many years ago where many of the people, not all of them, but many of them were just cold. They didn't dance. They didn't laugh. They had little capacity for joy. But there's one thing they enjoyed, passing judgment on other people. You ever been in a church like that? Hopefully we are not that church. Hopefully we'll never be that church. They just enjoyed passing judgment on other people. Somebody's kids went a little while, we'd pick up a stone. Somebody's marriage wasn't working, we'd pick up a stone. The worship leader chose the wrong kind of song and played it too loudly, we picked up a stone. Somebody crossed a line, violated a code, had a problem, word spread, we picked up stones. The truth is, we get energized from picking up stones, from judging others. We do it over and over again, don't we? I'm guilty, you're guilty. Look at all the tats on that guy. She's got more piercings than a fish who's been caught in a hook for days. Look, look, look at how they spend their money. Look at where they went on vacation. How dare they? And we judge. I guess I'm the only one guilty of that in here. What a tragedy. I, I like how one author puts it, Ortberg, actually, in that same book, he says... He's talking about the Jewish leaders. He said, I wonder whether when these teachers of the law first signed up as young men to devote themselves to a life of service, if they had warm hearts for God and others. I mean, they they decided to do this because they love God and love other people. Weren't they, in fact, motivated by love? But over time, something happened. All their learning about Scripture filled them with pride. All their efforts at obedience filled them with disdain for the less devout. All their giftedness filled them with impatience for those who are weaker. All their spiritual power filled them with contempt for the weak. And they became as enslaved by a cold heart as an addict can become enslaved by crack cocaine. What is so insidious about the sins of the spirit is that the carriers don't have a clue. At least with sins of the flesh, you find out you've messed up. With sins of the spirit, you may not even know. You just walk through life with a stone in your hand. 
a stone of judgmental thought, a stone of superior attitude, a stone of impatient words, a stone of bitter resentment, a stone that leaves little room for love. People stand around you trembling in brokenness, trembling in guilt, trembling in fear, trembling in loss, but you're so caught up in your own self-righteousness you don't even see them. Or worse yet, you see them and you're not moved. You don't even notice. We're not in the life-saving business anymore. We're in the judging business. Broken people all around us. Does it break our hearts? Or do we cluck our tongues and say, hey, they deserve it. They come in line through feed my sheep and say, obviously, they've messed up their lives. When we see people neck deep in sin, do we weep over them? Are we brokenhearted for them? And do we say, God, help them. And God, keep me pure before you. Well, this woman was just shoved in the midst of this group, shamed by everyone. But Jesus does an amazing thing. By the way, Romans 15, 7 says, accept one another just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. It doesn't mean we don't look at sin and we don't deal with sin, but the reality is most of us would rather be in the judgment, most of us would rather be in the judgment seat than the mercy seat. Jesus does an amazing thing. You know the story very well. We go back to John chapter 8. We should have broken hearts and we should weep over the sins of others. So Jesus stoops down to write again. When he wrote the first time, it was for all of their eyes. This time, it's just she and him. The lawgiver and the lawbreaker. That's who's left. Jesus and this woman. And and Jesus looks at her and said, two of them. They, they all leave, and he straightens up in verse 10, and he says, Woman, where are they? Did, did no one condemn you? And she sheepishly, I would imagine, says, No one. Who? What's it say in your Bible? Verse 11, And she said, No one. Lord. Do you see it? N- no one. Lord. And I imagine she's waiting for a sermon. There's a sermon brewing in Jesus and she is waiting for it to come, but that's not what comes. What comes are words of grace, neither do I condemn you. In words of truth, go and sin no more. Words of grace, in words of truth. The trembling subsides, her face softens. She has a thousand questions racing through her mind. Should I ask him questions? Should I thank him? Should I stay? Should I go? I imagine she looks in his face and realizes, I just need to go. We have no idea what happens after this. I picture this woman walking down the hallway of the temple and then turning around and looking at Jesus and then just continuing on. And I, I, I can only speculate. We have no idea what happens after this. Imagine, maybe she didn't cry much that day, but I guarantee you she cried buckets full in the future. Maybe it was a day when she watched her husband headed off to the field to go to work, and as he's gone to work in the fields with his, with his hoe and his sickle, and she begins to cry because she realizes it wasn't for the love of the Savior she wouldn't have a husband. Maybe it's a night when she tucks her kids in bed. She watches them sleep. And all she can do is tremble. If it wasn't for Jesus, I wouldn't have kids. I'd be condemned and stoned and dead. But he extended to me grace and mercy 
and he told me to go and sin no more. He gave me truth to live by. The same Savior makes that same offer to you. This day and every day. The difference between grace and mercy. I love how Max Licato says this. Not just mercy, mind you, but grace. Grace goes beyond mercy. Mercy gave Ruth food. Grace gave her a husband and a home. Mercy gave the prodigal son a second chance. Grace threw him a party. Mercy prompted the Samaritan to bandage the wounds of the victim. Grace prompted him to leave his credit card as payment for the victim's care. Mercy forgave the thief on the cross. Grace escorted him into paradise. Mercy pardons us. Grace woos and weds us. Mercy is us not receiving what we deserve. Grace is God lavishing upon us his love and so much more. So let's conclude by talking about two things. First of all, God's grace to us. Secondly, our grace to others. God's grace to us. While we were yet sinners, God loved us. That's his grace. We who were far off are now made one in him. That's God's grace lavished upon us. There's no condemnation for those of us in Christ Jesus. That's God's grace lavished upon us. I can quote verse after verse after verse. The Father has lavished you with his grace. He'll never run out. We sang about his reckless love. We sang about the good, good father. He, his, his grace, will, it never runs out. It's a teasing well that's always flowing, always bubbling, always coming. My wife loves to give Christmas stockings. If you never experienced Bev DeSavlo's Christmas stocking, you're missing a blessing. We can't give all of you one, so it's not going to happen. But it's like this never-ending thing. You put your hand in, you get one thing, and another thing, and another thing, and another thing, and another thing. And they're small things, but she's thoughtfully put together whatever it is that you love. And it's like this never-ending blessing coming out of this. That's the grace of God. It comes up and bubbles up over and over and over, never runs out, never in short supply. And you can experience that grace today, grace for salvation and grace for living. Secondly, what, our, what about our grace to other people? You see, we tend to judge so quickly, don't we? I mean, we tend to judge so quickly rather than extending grace. Maybe you remember this story. I used it when we did Daniel a couple of years ago. This lady received a phone call that her daughter was uh, homesick, sent home from school sick, and uh, went home with an older brother who had picked her up and taken her home and needed medicine. So the mom left work, stopped by the pharmacy to pick up some medication. When she came out of the pharmacy to her car, she realized she had locked her keys in her car. And she was frantic. She knew she needed to get the medicine to her daughter. And so she prayed. She said, God, help me to get out of this jam. And she looked around. There was a rusty old coat hanger on the ground. She picked it up and she began to fiddle with her car. And there was no way that she was going to be able to unlock that car thing. So she said, God, please send somebody to help me. About that time, a battered car drove up. Out jumped a guy with a biker do-rag on his head, beard down to his chest, tats everywhere, piercings everywhere. And she began to, she said, I begin to judge him. I said, dear God, is this what you sent me in my time of desperation? And the man came up and said, can I help you, ma'am? And she said, you sure can. Do you have any idea how to open a car with a coat hanger? I've got to get this medicine to my daughter. And he said, I think I can do that. She said, in a matter of 10 seconds, he popped open the car. I, I just reached up and spontaneously gave him a hug and said, thank you, thank you. You're such a nice man. He said, I appreciate that. I just got out of prison for car theft. <laughs> the woman paused for a moment, looked up to heaven and said, dear God, thank you for answering my prayer and sending me a professional. <laughs> How quick we are to judge though, right? We judge so quickly. God, this is what you give me. And all of a sudden, we recognize in his goodness and his grace 
He gives us more than we need. My uh, Bev and I's college pastor passed away this week. Donald Tapp, chaplain on the campus. He and his best friend, he was 85, his best friend was 86. They hired a fishing guide. Uh, they were headed to the Gulf of Mexico to fish. They came to the mouth of the river. They hit some turbulence or a wave or something, capsized their boat. And uh, his friend was uh, drowning, his 86-year-old. So Donald instructed the guide to uh, help his friend. He got his friend to the guide, got Donald's friend, 86-year-old friend, to the shore, but he had drowned. And then we get word that, uh, that his body was missing. So for three days, no, nobody. And uh, they found his body yesterday morning. But there's a story I read about Donald that uh, one of his uh, ministry assistants, young guy who was headed towards ministry, he was just finished LSU, he founded the chapel on the campus. It's a church right in the, right in the middle of LSU. And uh, he had a young ministry assistant who one of the young men he was discipling fell away, wouldn't meet with him. He found out the guy was involved in a moral relationship. He told Donald, and Donald said, we're going to go find him. So they went to his apartment door, knocked on his door. He came to the door. And the young ministry assistant said, I was waiting for Donald just to give him the sermon of his life. Tell him how wrong he was and what he was doing. And he said, I watched my pastor throw his arms around that young man and weep. Broken. Broken over his sin. And I watched the prodigal come home. How do you look at others? Do you judge them? Or do you weep with them? And love on them? And care for them? And stand alongside them? And love them back to the Savior? The Savior, as opposed to those Jewish leaders, is filled with grace and mercy. I'm convinced of this. The most barren heart, that woman had a barren heart, can be brought to life through the gospel. Sitting with you right now, one of my friends, he met Jesus in prison. He got a strong testimony. Sitting with you right now, another one of my friends who met Christ through a tough divorce. Sitting with you right now, myself and my sisters who our mama led us to faith. Godly mama. Sitting with you right now, I could tell you a story after you come to baptism now, you hear 19 different stories. Here's my question. What's your story? Is it filled with his grace? Filled with his mercy? Filled with his love? And are you one who says, let me throw my arms around you and love you back to my Savior? Because he loves you that much. Our Savior, filled with grace and mercy and truth. He didn't ignore the sin. He loved that sinner and sets an example for each of us. Father, thank you. Thank you for the way you have loved us and cared for us. Thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for grace and mercy. As you keep your heads bowed, I'm going to read to you a prayer. It's a prayer from a man named Ken Geyer who wrote a chapter in a book about the woman caught in adultery. Would you make this your prayer? Dear Lord Jesus, 
There are times I've stood in the crowd condemning with stones in my hand. There are the times when my heart has been filled with adultery. There are many times my hands have been filled with stones to cast at others. Forgive me for a heart that is prone to wonder. Forgive me for the eagerness in bringing you the sins of others and talking to others about other sins. Forgive me for the reluctance to bringing to you my own sin. Father, forgive me for the times I've stood smugly pharisaic and measured out judgment against others. Father, help me to be more like Jesus, filled with grace and filled with truth. Help me not to live by law, but by grace, by the compassion you showed to that woman so many mornings ago. Father, give me the pierced conscience of the older men who begin to drop their stones first to leave the circle of self-righteousness. Father, thank you for the sweet words of forgiveness you spoke to that woman. Neither do I condemn you. Words that flow so freely from your lips. Words I've heard so often when I've stumbled in sin. And the strength of those unmerited words help me to go my way and sin no more. In the mighty name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Bless you, my friends.